It's in what he has done. Two weekends ago, we had the opportunity to baptize 37 people at the creek down in Montevallo. Just evidence of God's grace and kindness towards our church. It's amazing when we get opportunity to see people being baptized, they are publicly declaring to the world, Jesus has changed my life. I'm not who I used to be. I have jumped kingdoms. I have gone from death into life, and Christ has changed me forever. And this is what the gospel does. That when you encounter the Lord Jesus Christ, he changes everything about you. This is what Jesus came to do, is to bring people to himself. And I love that we as a church get to celebrate all that Christ has done through the gospel and through baptisms, declaring the power of that gospel. It's amazing how the gospel can change anybody. You think about even the Apostle Paul. Here is a man who sought to destroy Christians, and then he becomes a Christ follower. This is a man who tried to destroy disciples, and then he becomes a disciple maker. This is a man who sought to snuff out the church, and then he became a church planter. You see, if Jesus can save a Saul of Tarsus and turn him into the apostle Paul, Jesus can save you. There is no sin too great, nothing you've done that can ever keep you from the power of God's reach and God's love. He is displayed perfectly through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, His perfect way of loving you and calling you to Himself. This is what the gospel does. But the gospel not only rescues and saves and forgives and redeems, though it does all of that, The gospel also compels us to take the good news of Jesus to those who have never heard. When we get to Acts chapter 17, we see where the apostle Paul is now coming into the ancient city of Athens. And as he arrives, he has an opportunity to point a lot of people to Jesus. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 17. And as you're turning there, you can kind of hear in my voice, I'm fighting a little bit of a, of a cold. And so if you'll be patient with me, there may be a few times where I have to press pause on the sermon to, to cough for a moment. I'll try and do that as little as possible, but please give me grace today. Uh, we've seen through our study of the book of Acts and the sermon series called Sent, just how the power of the gospel is now being sent out amongst the nations and, and the neighbors. We, well, it began in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 1, has now spread, Acts 17, all the way to the shores of Europe. When Jesus said in Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses uh, when you receive power. On, um, come on, Bruce, Acts 1.8. And you'll receive power from the Holy Spirit when he comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus, the true and greatest prophet, was right in that the Holy Spirit fell, Acts 2. The gospel is now spreading out from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and now to the ends of the earth. We've seen lately where the Apostle Paul now is on his second missionary journey. He went to Philippi where he and Silas preached Jesus. A mob attacked them. They received beatings, imprisonment, and then there was an earthquake that led to the salvation of a Philippian jailer, And then there was a church that was planted right there in Philippi in the home of Lydia. 
They moved on to Thessalonica, where they preached Jesus. And a mob attacked the believers there in that city. Well, in the cover of night, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they skip town. They head to Berea. They get to Berea, and the people receive the word with eagerness. They're grateful for the preaching of the word. Paul would preach the Old Testament and make a beeline to Jesus. And they were studying and falling in love with Jesus. But the Jews in Thessalonica heard that Paul was preaching Jesus down in Berea. So they make the 45-mile trip to Berea, and they stir up the crowd against them there. So the church in Berea sends Paul away by boat, and he heads towards Athens. And when he arrives in Athens, he instructs for Silas and Timothy to come to him as quickly as possible. And that's where we pick up in Acts 17, beginning with verse 16. And the scripture says this. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worshiped God, as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him. Some said, what is this ignorant show-off trying to say? Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection They took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, May we learn about this new teaching you are presenting. Because what you say sounds strange to us, and we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that you're extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each of one of us. For in him, we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, then, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead." When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him. But others said, we'd like to hear from you again about this. So Paul left their presence. However, some people joined him and believed, including Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Demarius, and others with them. Athens, modern day Greece, home of great philosophers like Aristotle and Socrates and Plato. This city was the hub of great thinkers, artists, historians, mathematicians, scientists, 
architects, even authors of great literature that we still read today. Athens was a combination of New York City culture, Juilliard artistry, and Harvard academics, all combined into one place. You see, the Athenians, they believed in democracy and civil responsibility for governments. They believed in their cultural superiority over everybody else. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? The philosophy and mathematical formulas and the styles of teaching and learning that were developed here in Athens are continually being used even today on your children and grandchildren. That's the impact of what happened there in this great city. This is the culture that Paul finds himself in in Acts 17. A city full of people who are full of knowledge, but empty of truth. They're full of information, empty of hope. They're full of arrogance, empty of grace and wisdom. Well, as Paul walked the streets of Athens, he saw that the people of Athens were not just puffed up with knowledge, they were bloated with knowledge. So with this culture that he's trying to engage and reach with the gospel, I want you to notice in the text how Paul the missionary engaged the people of Athens with the gospel and what this means for us today. The first thing I want you to see in the text is this. I want you to notice the heart of a missionary. The heart of a missionary. The text tells tells us that Paul was, verse 16, deeply distressed. Now, some of your translations might say deeply troubled or his spirit was provoked. It's a difficult word to translate, but it communicates the idea of being burdened. It's it's like you can imagine a a combination of of anger and, and brokenhearted compassion. Have you ever had someone in your life who just continually kept making bad decisions? They were just in a cycle of just making foolish choices. That They were, they were like that Proverbs uh, a 26, 11 fool who is like the dog who returns to their vomit. They just keep doing the same thing over and over again. And it, just, it, just, it brings you to a point of not just anger, but brokenhearted compassion. You're, you're burdened for them. That's what Paul felt. As he's walking through this city, he sees people's hearts who are far from God, worshiping all of these idols. As one historian said, there were more gods in Athens than people. And he's broken over this. It bothers him. Several years ago, there was a Westwood member who went on a mission trip to Southeast Asia, uh, working with women who were caught in the sex trade. And she would go and she would prayer walk and she would work with a missions agency And she shared with me when she came back about her heart was just broken over what she saw. There was an anger towards those who were taking advantage of women. But then also there's this brokenhearted compassion for those who are hurting. This is what Paul feels. He's in this moment of seeing this idolatry of people who are pursuing all these other gods. And they're missing the God who made them and loves them and has sent his son for them. Years ago, I was in New Orleans with a group of pastors, and we were, we were prayer walking one night. And we went to Bourbon Street, and it was there that my heart was broken to see people bow down to the idol of alcohol, bow down to the idol of sex, bow down to the idol of debauchery, and seeing people throw their lives away. It was dark, it was repulsive, and it was heartbreaking. This is what Paul is feeling. He's seeing Athens, and he is... Verse 16, deeply distressed. This is the heart of a missionary. 
And as you and I live in this culture, as we are swimming in the stream of a culture around us that is pursuing idols all around us, does it bother us? Does it bring a brokenhearted compassion to see people who are not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, idolatry is something that is so natural to our, uh, our sinful nature. John Calvin says that the, the human heart is an idol factory. We are continually creating idols in our own hearts if we don't turn from them and turn our hearts toward the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, how can we discern an idol? I think this is a pretty good definition. Where you give your love, your time, your energy, and your money, that is your God. Whatever gets the most of you, that is your God. Whatever makes you emotionally get really, really high or really, really low. Whatever you're financially giving to, okay? You can go to your bank statement. It will tell you where your heart is. Because Jesus says, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Where you spend your time. You see, you and I are living in a culture of people who are bowing down to various idols all around us. I think so. if I can call, we could be here all day just calling out all the idols of our culture. I'm going to call just a couple of them. I think one of the, the idols of our culture is the idol of me. Me, thinking me first. It's a me first thinking. What's in it for me? When I, when I go to work, well, what's in it for me when I do this? Or when I get married, what's in it for me? When I have children, what's in it for me? It's just me-centered thinking. I think there's another idol that's prevalent in our culture. It saturates our culture. It's the, it's the idol of sex. This idea that you have to find your identity in your sexuality. That is not how God made you to be. But it's prevalent through pornography, through transgenderism, through homosexuality, adultery, people pursuing sex in any other way that they can outside of God's design of His good gift and the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman for life. But it's becoming so innocuous in our culture that people wrap their identities around it. There's all these idols that we can see that people pursue. And so I ask you a question. What is the idolatry that you see in your world? As you see people around you, you can see where money goes, where time goes, where love goes, where people give their energy. That's where you see where their idols are. That is what they worship. But even as we should and rightly be broken, hearted over the sin of those around us, let us be careful that we are more broken over the sin in our own hearts. Before we shake our fists and scream at the rain and those out in our culture over how they're acting and behaving, lost people act the way they do because they're lost. They don't know Christ. You see, when your heart has been changed by Jesus, He changes your affections, your desires. He changes your allegiance. He changes the way you spend your money, the way you spend your time, the way you view yourself, how you live in this world. Instead of swimming with the world, you're now swimming upstream against the culture of this world. But we've also been very careful about not becoming Pharisees who are so quick to call out the sins of the world without examining our own hearts. And we must be quick to examine our hearts and say, Lord, reveal anything within me that doesn't look like Jesus. 
hey God, I want to confess it. I want to repent of it. I want to run to Christ for grace. And Lord, I want to find my victory in Jesus. You see, this is the heart of a missionary. We see the Apostle Paul, he's surveying the landscape of Athens. He's seeing a sea of people who don't know Christ. And it bothers him. And it compels him to want to respond. As you survey the landscape of the world around you, do you feel a brokenness for the world? A heart that just breaks seeing people far from God? Are you in danger of allowing your heart to become lethargic? Are you allowing your heart to become stale towards people who are lost and don't know Christ yet? If that's where you are, I want to invite you to pray this prayer. Father, break my heart for what breaks yours. Father, break my heart for what breaks your heart. Father, I desire for my desires to align with yours. I don't want to celebrate and affirm what you have clearly said in your word you are against. So Lord, help me to let your word be plumb line of truth. But Father, may me also, Lord, would you put within me, by the power of your Holy Spirit, a heart for the world that you have. And then watch how God will begin to work and move in your life. As you begin to see your co-workers and your teammates and your neighbors who are far from God and who God loves so much, that is your mission field. Those are the people who God has placed in your life and you will begin to have a heart that beats for them to come to know Christ, to be broken over their lostness and have a desire to see them come to a saving knowledge of Christ. This is the heartbeat of Paul. He wanted to see people come to a saving knowledge of Christ. Jesus. You see, sin breaks the heart of God. And yet by his great love and out of his great compassion for sinners, he sends his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived that perfect life that you and I couldn't live. And he lived that perfect life of worship unto his father. And then he came and he gave his life at the cross. He died in your place that all of the wrath that you and I deserve for our sin was placed squarely upon the shoulders of Jesus. And He absorbed it gladly and joyfully, full of love for you. Because He wants your heart. He wants you. And if you're here today, you don't know Christ, hear me, He wants you. He knows your sin. He knows your brokenness. He knows all the things that you've pursued other than Him. And yet He still loves you. You're never too far to be gone to be saved by Jesus. You're never too far from the loving reach of Christ. He gave His life and His blood was shed for the forgiveness of your sins. And He was buried. He was placed in a tomb. But on the third day, He walked out that tomb. He defeated death. He is the victor, the conqueror, the hero of the world. And all who turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. If today you don't know Christ, I invite you, oh, that you would repent of your sin. Turn away from your self-righteousness. Turn away from your pride. Turn away from your sin. And turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Surrender your life completely to Him and He will save you. He will rescue you. When you by faith call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. This is the gospel that I have heard and believed. This is the gospel that so many of you here and those of you engaging online, you have heard and believed. And this is the gospel that Paul has preached and the apostles have preached and churches and believers for thousands of years have preached and believed. And now I hand it over to you. And we take this gospel and oh, that you would grab hold of the Lord Jesus Christ. He will save you. 
if you will call on his name. That's the heart of the Apostle Paul. This is the heart of a missionary who's brokenhearted over a people he's trying to reach with the gospel. But then there's the second thing we see in there in the text that we see about this missionary, the Apostle Paul. We see the feet of the missionary. The feet of the missionary. Where does Paul go when he gets there? It's almost like, um, like a fill in the blank. You can almost fill it in before the question is asked. You know he's going to go to the synagogue first. That's his pattern. We've seen this. In all of the cities he goes to, first stop, I'm going to synagogue. Why? He's Jewish. He's a Pharisee of Pharisee. He's a Benjaminite. Here's a guy who knows his people. He knows the Old Testament better than most people in the world. And so he goes to the synagogue, verse 17, and he begins preaching Jesus. He's preaching the gospel. He would open to an Old Testament text and he would preach Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of whatever text he would look at in the Old Testament. He would go to the synagogue. But then Paul also went somewhere else, verse 17. Where is it? The marketplace, the agora, the agora. The agora is the marketplace, the, the center, the hub of the city. Hang on there. I'm close. There we go. He goes to the agora. Now I want to show you a picture of what it looks like from the Agora. So if those of you engaging online, I'm sorry you can't see this very well. You are standing at the Agora in Athens. Below you is the city of Athens. Off to your far right is Mars Hill, the Areopagus. Lord willing, we're going to get there next week in verses 22 and following when Paul preaches right there at Mars Hill at the Areopagus. We'll deal with that next week when we get to verse 22 and following. But where you're standing is the Agora. It's the marketplace. But this is more than just like a grocery store. It's far, far more than that. The Agora is like the town square. It would function as a city hall, an art center, a courthouse. Philosophers would gather here to share new ideas. News reports would be shared here. Business dealings and trade. It was the hub of the city. If you wanted to meet a friend for the day, you would meet at the Agora. If you wanted to hear the news of the day, if you wanted to settle a legal dispute, you would go to the Agora. If you wanted to listen to people pontificate on the latest ideas of the day, you'd go to the Agora. So Paul would go to the marketplace. He'd go to the Agora to preach Christ. He went to where the people were. But when he gets there, he starts getting mocked, made fun of, belittled. May I say to you, if you are going to share the gospel with your friends and co-workers and teammates and classmates, you're going to be mocked, made fun of, belittled. People will roll their eyes. Not you again. Not this again. I can't believe you believe that. You are going to hear that. Well, guess what? You're in good company because that's exactly what the Apostle Paul had to deal with as well. Here he is in Acts 17, and these Epicureans and Stoics start mocking him. What is this ignorant show-off, verse 18, saying? What's he trying to say here? They're mocking him. Well, who are these Epicureans and these Stoics? Well, the Epicureans believed that pleasure was the highest end in life. Right, if it feels good, do it. Don't worry about consequences. There's no consequences. Live and let live. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Just enjoy life. 
Those were Epicureans. The Stoics believed that virtue was the highest calling in life. That suffering is part of life. Just grin and bear it. Deal with it and move on. But you should be virtuous and moral. There's nothing you can do about hardship in life. You see, both worldviews were hopeless. Both worldviews were meaningless. And what we see in the Epicureans and the Stoics, who were the dominant worldviews of the day, were the mindsets of people who thought, you know what, I'm just going to live for me. Who does that sound like? You and I now live in a culture where people are, in many ways, like the Epicureans and the Stoics. We live in a culture where there are people who are into skepticism. They're skeptics. They, don't, they want to think cerebrally. They want to think, and they will discount, they will belittle those who believe the gospel. They will mock those who trust in the God of the Bible. Skeptics want to just enjoy life. They're going to doubt, question, and go live however they want to. There's also a rising generation in our nation right now in America where according to Pew Research, 30% of adults ages 30 and younger are what's called the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, the nuns, meaning they don't believe in anything. It's a type of atheism, but they don't acknowledge any of the religions. They don't really acknowledge church involvement, not interested in any of those actions. They are the nuns. They're in many ways apathetic towards the things of God. But here's the good news of the gospel. The truth of the gospel is sufficient to address the questions of the skeptic and the apathy of the nuns. The gospel is completely trustworthy that for thousands of years, people have tried to debunk, question, and obliterate it. They can't. The gospel is completely trustworthy. You can bank your soul upon the truth of what you believe. The, the gospel can stand the harsh and difficult questions. You can trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the gospel is also powerful enough to transform the heart of someone who's apathetic towards the things of God. So as you go to your agora, your marketplace, you are going to be encountering people who are skeptics and even the nuns. And whoever you, you encounter, you do what Paul does, preach Christ. You point them to the Lord Jesus Christ. God is able to take the gospel and to transform people's lives through the preaching of the gospel. We are to be a people who stay engaged in our world to point people to the Lord Jesus Christ. So wherever God has planted you in this season of your life, you are a missionary. Now, as your pastor, the, the, the drum I want to keep hitting until we can really grab hold of this as we go through the book of Acts, it's this. I want you to understand this one thing. You are a missionary. You're a missionary. Right where you are. You may not be in Africa or Southeast Asia. But you're a missionary right where God has already planted you. I think Tony Meredith said it really well. He says, whatever your influence, whether you're in banking, education, athletics, medicine, journalism, science, politics, art, filmmaking, music, do not retreat from the culture. Like Paul, engage it. Humbly, boldly, and intelligently 
You see, you are a missionary right where God has planted you. He's put you in your neighborhood, in your classroom, on your ball team, in your band room, on your cheerleading squad to point people to Jesus. And you, as an ambassador for Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, you represent Him, and now you go into your workplace with a mission. You have a purpose. It's the Great Commission. It's making disciples. So you go into your world pointing people to Jesus. You are a missionary. But did you see how diligent Paul was? How often did he go to the Agora? Verse 17. Every day. Every day. That man was disciplined. And he was tenacious. He wanted people to know Jesus. So here is Paul every day going to the marketplace, every day showing up. He's telling people about Christ. Now, some people mocked him. Some people belittled him. Some people are like, hey, you're, you're crazy for believing that. What are these crazy things that you're saying? But Paul wanted to reach people for Jesus. He would later write in Romans 15, verse 20, he says, my aim is to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named so that I will not build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. You see, Paul had a heart for unreached people. He wanted people who had never heard of Christ to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. And maybe today, God is going to begin stirring your heart for a people group you've never met. And there are people in this world, there are two billion people who've never heard of Christ. And God may begin stirring within your heart a desire for a people whom you've never met, you don't speak their language, and yet you have a desire to see them come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. And you have this heart to reach them with the gospel. I love this quote from C.T. Studd, great missionary of the faith. I love his last name. He says, Some want to live within the sound of a church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Come on. Sign me up for that. Playing offense with the gospel. Let's continue to play offense with the gospel. Not be offensive, but play offense with the gospel. Or that you would hear the words of Robert Moffat, a pioneer to South Africa, in which he said this, Many a morning have I stood on the porch of my house and looking northward have seen the smoke arise from villages that have never heard of Jesus Christ. I have seen at different times the smoke of a thousand villages. Villages whose people are without Christ, without God, and without hope in the world. Westwood, this is who we are and who we're going to continue to be. A church that has a heart for the nations of people who are far from the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to leverage all that we have and all that we are for the sake of the mission of making Christ known where He is not known yet. When, when you and I give to Westwood, a part of what we give is going to the nations. Because why? We want to reach people with the gospel. For those who have never heard, we want to see churches planted and established and lives changed. People baptized in creeks and rivers and oceans and lakes and bathtubs, declaring publicly, I've put my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to see the gospel move forward. But it's going to take all of us. 
all of us engage in the mission of making much of Christ. Remember what Paul said in Romans 10? How beautiful are the feet of those who carry the gospel of peace. When you go and preach Jesus in your agora, in your workplace, in your ball team, in your neighborhood, you go to your agora, your feet are beautiful as you point people to Jesus. What we see in the text is the heart of a missionary, the feet of a missionary. And thirdly, we see the message of the missionary. The message. You see it right there in verse 18. What did Paul preach? He was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. He was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. That was his message. We'll see it again next week at the end of his message there to the Areopagus. But he was continually preaching Jesus. Jesus or Paul was obsessed with Jesus. His life had been so radically changed by Christ, he couldn't help but talk about him. And he kept telling them the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. The bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus. That he literally got up from the grave. That on the third day, Jesus came back to life. His heart was beating. His brain was firing. Blood was pumping. He's walking around, eating with people, being touched by people, engaging with people. Hundreds upon hundreds of witnesses who can say, I saw that got that man alive. And the resurrection was true. And the apostles could never get over it. And so here's Paul, halfway around the world, over in Athens. And what is he doing? He's preaching the good news of Jesus and the resurrection. You see, the resurrection changes everything. It means this. No matter what you are facing right now, it's going to be okay. A disobedient child, the death of someone you love, someone you trusted turned their back on you, You get a pink slip. You experience a miscarriage. You go through the lowest of valleys. Because the tomb is empty, it's going to be okay. The fact that Jesus got up out of the grave, it changes everything. You have resurrection power now. You have new life now. So even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. The Lord Jesus Christ, who is risen from the dead, is with you, beloved. If you are in Christ, the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. This is the message. And this is what has been preached for thousands and thousands of years. And if Jesus doesn't return in our lifetime for hundreds and thousands of years to come, for even death and hell can't overcome the church. This is what we preach. This is what we hold fast to until we go on to glory. This is our message. We have our mission. We have our place to go, the nations and our neighbors. So Kenneth, what are you calling us to? It's your impact point, and it's this. You are a missionary. Go and share Jesus with people in your agora.
your marketplace. There's people in your life right now who need Jesus. And God has strategically and intentionally placed you in their life to point them to Him.